Welcome to the Pandora Podcast, where fellowship-trained pain specialists Dr. Melissa Cady and Dr. Kevin Cucaro reveal the secrets of pain care, including harmful practices, healthy tips, and the hope found through the science of pain. Please note, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. Please discuss your medical issues with your personal health professional. For more information and free resources, visit Pandora.com. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Pandora podcast. I am Melissa Cady, uh, anesthesiologist, pain medicine physician. I'm joined here today by Dr. Kevin, Kevin Kakaro, who is a pain specialist himself with very similar training. Uh, we pretty much have followed the same lines of training and come to realizations that are pretty similar um, at different courses of our professional life after training. So we had spoken on our first podcast uh, regarding this whole idea of, we brought up this book that was amazing, which actually I can show again, we might as well. And if you can see it, do you really need spine surgery? We had some good discussions, I think, uh, Dr. Kevin, don't you think about uh, what people should consider and maybe some of the topics, uh, you know, about spine surgery. Um, I'm assuming you agree with that. Oh, no, I, I, think, I think we had a great discussion. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking about it. I'm like, you know, the problem is, is I don't think enough people are going to read the book. Yes. You know? and, here, and the other problem, this could probably might lead into some of the stuff that we're talking about today is when you are in horrendous amounts of pain, and we can talk about like a pain flare or new pain or whatever, uh, it is so difficult to think clearly and to make rational decisions. And there's a whole bunch of reasons, and we can talk about that some on how the, you know, your decision-making capability of the brain goes down. Um, and so that's one of the tricky things when it comes to pain is when you're under the worst pain, it becomes the most difficult time to make these decisions. And just saying, oh, you need to read this book. Nobody wants to read a book when you're in that. It's like you're, you know, your house is on fire. Nobody wants to learn about fire. They just want the house to be put out. And it's the same thing with pain. But really, ideally... Like what I tell people, well, that's, you really want to learn about pain before you're experiencing it. That's the ideal time. And then if you're in the middle of it, though, is you have to develop that little bit of space so that you can start thinking a little bit rationally because it is such, it's such a treacherous world out there when it comes to these therapies. So I Absolutely. thought we had great discussions on, on the back pain, back surgery, especially, and really don't you know, it's not even a last resort for most of the time. It's just, it shouldn't be a resort period. Yeah. And it's just an option for the right rare situation. And just to touch base on this Pandora podcast, you might be wondering, what is it that we're going to be talking about? Is it always going to be about pain? Nobody wants to hear about pain unless you're in it. Um, but the reality is, is Pandora, and I, I would love for you to tap into that story here again in a second, but the idea that life is filled with challenges and stresses and various types of pain, however you want to categorize it. And many times it's hard when you're in the middle of it, if you're not prepared and understand the situation or have not been given the skill set to deal with those things. And sometimes we are a little bit too quick to, to do these quick fix types approaches because that's how we've been trained and not really the fault of our own, but the way society has kind of, um, I don't want to say, um, you know, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to use that word. I'll, I'll skip that word, but brainwashed is what I was going to say, but we've been kind of trained or educated in a way that is 
about either when it comes to what we say physical pain, even though there's a lot more to it than that, that we think injections, medications, and surgeries are the options. And I think that was, that's where our conversation will go today is, is many times the question is, well, or the comment is before the people jump into surgery is, well, I've tried everything. And that is a loaded comment right there <laughs> that we can break down into many pieces. But um, before you maybe give your perspective on that, uh, Dr. Kevin, can you talk a little bit about the irony of the, the title of the podcast and oh, being Pandora? Pandora? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know sure if that's ironic or, uh, you know, I would get confused <laughs> by that probably because of the Alanis Morissette song, because that's supposed to be not irony. Um, <laughs> But I, it was fascinating about Pandora and kind of one of the reasons that we kind of came to, together on deciding on that is um, if you remember Greek mythology and the story of Pandora. So before there was an internet radio station, uh, there was the Greek myth of Pandora, who was a person who was given a box and she was given this box by the gods and um, they knew her to be a very curious individual. And their words were, were you're going to keep this box safe and do not open it, which as anybody knows, as soon as you have the box and you don't know what's in it, the only thing that you want to do is open it and you want to open it. And this poor uh, girl couldn't, couldn't handle it anymore. And eventually she did. And when she opened the box that she wasn't supposed to open, which was actually the intention of the gods, by the way, they wanted her to open the box. She released the furies upon the world. And the furies were things like death and plague and, and hunger and pain. Um, but after all these furies came out and she's just like, you know, devastated because she's released these things upon the globe. Uh, the last thing to that flew out of that box was the spirit of hope. And so really when we're talking about this on the pain donor podcast, our, we're, we're going to be touching on pain for sure. That's our background. Um, also because, and this is really crucially important for people to understand is that learning about pain is never irrelevant. If you're a human, you're going to experience it. All good pain skills are life skills and the side effects actually bleed off into other areas of your life in a positive manner. Um, and so what we, we want to do though is provide hope. So we're going to talk about pain and we can talk about health, you know, and then when we talk about uh, hopefully provide some usable solutions, some warning signs to keep you safe from the furies that are out there, but ultimately to leave you with that sense of hope that there is things that can be done. They're just usually not the ones that are, uh, profitably marketed uh, when you were talking about brainwashing is um, all that advertising isn't for your best interest. It happens to be for the person who's advertising's best interest. And when it comes to pain and most therapies, that generally isn't in your best interest. Absolutely. Now, I think there's, um, you know, this idea that, that you've, you've tried everything um, it's really hard when I get approached by that kind of comment to <laughs> people don't want to be accused that they haven't tried everything when they say they've tried everything. <laughs> and the, and the and, question it really yeah. should be instead of, or the answer should not be, I've tried everything. Um, because realistically nobody has tried everything because there's really an almost an infinite approach matter when it comes to pain. And the more we understand pain, the more, freeing that becomes the more opportunities the more things that we can do are um it really should what have you tried specifically right. um and the you know everything doesn't tell anybody anything 
But if we can specifically talk about what you have tried, then we can sort of find the commonalities between those particular therapies. Um, some of the reasons why they may have not produced the outcome that most people have wanted uh, and, and understand why that is. And, and usually when I hear that with, uh, oh, I've tried everything. And then I ask, well, what have you tried? Everything usually involves what other people have done to you. Right. So this particular discussion isn't what we would call between active and passive-based therapies, but I should probably introduce them. And um, you can kind of group all treatments or all therapies or whatever you do when it comes to health and really life care into active modalities and passive modalities. Active modalities, the easiest way to think about those are things that you do for yourself or do with somebody else. So those would be things like exercise or expressive writing or working with a coach or working with a good therapist who can kind of guide you through a process. They facilitate change. And then there's what are known as the passive-based modalities. Passive-based modalities are things that are done to you, things that they don't, they don't require a lot of engagement on your part. You don't even have to really understand them in order to have them done to you. And so these are things like surgeries are a done-to-you therapy. Injections are a done-to-you therapy. You can even almost consider prescription drugs or just drugs in general or taking a supplement as a done to you because there, there isn't a whole lot of, you don't have to do a lot. You don't have to learn a lot. You don't have to actually participate much other than taking that pill and put it in your mouth. And generally what people say when I've tried everything, most often they've tried all those passive-based modalities, or I shouldn't even say all, many of those passive-based modalities. And that's only one piece of, of, of what's good out there in uh, and a whole nother podcast we could talk about is the fact of the matter is passive based modalities have a very limited scope where they're truly effective. Very small, very small. Yeah. Um, but they're also t tend to be the most profitable because I get paid to do stuff to you. And so they're overused, overutilized things like spine surgery. Like we talked about the last episode and things like that. Um, but their scope where they should be used is actually very, very small in regard in, in comparison to the rest of your health. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and that's, and just trying to make that bridge for people to understand that, you know, that, that difference and how, why that's important um, and understanding, and we touched on just the ingenuity of the body and, and its ability to adapt and um, really understanding that. But what's hard for people is trying to believe, it's hard for people to believe that these active modalities are helpful until they actually experience them. It's this experiential process that makes us true believers. And so, or maybe someone that, you know, your friend you see over months or years improving their own life and you have conviction because you saw it before your own eyes that this person put in the effort and they made a change, um, turn their life around or something. But that's that's the dilemma of the human uh, species <laughs> is that we we don't believe it till we see it for our own eyes uh, with our own eyes for ourselves and so um, that's that takes a lot more effort from clinicians to try to, to to meet the patient where they're at and understand how to convince them <laughs> or bring them or coach them I should say coach them through this process to believe in themselves and believe in their body again. Don't you think? Well, to, yeah, like, and I think I love that word bridge or root words, bridge the gap, right? Yeah. Because what you're really trying to do is tie, here's where someone is 
in pain, whatever that may be. So we can talk, it actually could be pain, it could be ill health, it could be some cardiac problem, it could right. be, you know, whatever, autoimmune disease or whatever, whatever the pain is. And then there's the outcome that they want. And most people want to feel better. And so that bridge becomes key. And so a done to you therapy kind of says, well, we can do this and bring them together, except it doesn't most of the time. Uh, but for a clinician to facilitate that gap is very, very difficult. And it's a skill set that almost none of us learn when we are in our medical training, specifically for doctors. Now, if you're looking at somebody like a uh, behavioral health specialist, um, uh, you know, some of the more rehab-based specialists in some situations, they have are likely more likely to have had that training or um, even if you're a primary care doc, if you're moving into that motivational interviewing kind of realm, where it's basically communicating in such a way to make that outcome understandable for the patient and, and find the motivators for them that'll help them to transist to, to, to kind of to bridge that gap. Why should they try to bridge that gap is really the key. That's the motivation part. And most of us don't have that training. Instead, yeah. we rely on, we think information is going to change behavior or information alone is going to motivate someone to change. And it doesn't. It, no. I mean, and there's abundant data on that. And we know that. But, but we in healthcare just think, well, if I walk in a room and say, you need to do this, you need to quit smoking because you have heart disease. And then someone keeps smoking. And then we're like, well, they just don't want to get better. That's completely asinine. It's yeah. We haven't, you know, there's human behavior is so complex to be able to understand and find those motivators and find the things that'll help someone to change, which is going to come from them. It's all, it's all patient centric rather than provider centric. And most of the way we have typically practiced is, is provider centric. What can I do to you rather than figuring out the reasons that's important for your patient or client, because uh, I don't like the word patient that much, um, what's important to them and yeah. why would they want to change? Exactly. And the worst part about the system that most physicians are working in is that you're not trained to deal with these nuances and understanding like this, how to, how to design or, or connect with the patient in a way that they're going to be receptive for change. Um, but there's less and less time that these physicians are spending. And so it's really hard to develop a rapport and this capacity for the client or patient to be have any willingness or trust in you for the engaged plan that is proposed and uh, so it's I feel like it's it's going to get only worse and then we're going to also I think unfortunately which bothers me is that so many patients are getting trapped in this model and they are if they come around to want to get engaged and get you know actually be involved with their their care many times is because they've had so many negative experiences that now they have this motivation that they don't want to do what they've done before because it was not effective. Yeah. You, like you, know, you put them through the ringer. Yeah. And there's generally, there's generally two paths and it's um, there's the group that finally says, I'm sick of this. I'm done with you. And then they typically go off and do their own thing and we don't see them in the healthcare system. And, uh, and they may have thought the physicians who took care of them that they're fine but they don't know they're actually not doing well. No, because they don't come back. Right. <laughs> or, or in, in uh, yeah, yeah, they just don't go back, so they don't know about them. Um, or we get a whole bunch of people that we have now basically trained and indoctrinated that have diseasified their body. We completely disempower them. Um, 
And then they come back seeking help. And the people are like, well, I don't know what to do for this patient. Why do they keep coming back? It's because they're seeking help because we've told them and we've told everybody, your body is this weak, pathetic thing. You need to go see your doctor for, for anything that happens to you. Um, it, you're going to probably die if you don't see your doctor. And people leave, listen to this. And they listen to the advertising from pharmaceutical companies on the TV. And, they, and we see all these normal symptoms in the body get diseasified. And they are coming for health. I mean, so we, we have basically created this mess. Um, mm -hmm. The medical profession has been, uh, we like to pick on pharma and we like to pick on, you know, medical device companies, but it's not like the physicians and healthcare providers are innocent either, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, and that, that's kind of where we felt that. Or the insurance companies, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's where some of us, including us, felt like we were complicit in the system by being part of this and hence why we didn't want to do well i mean i won't speak for you but you know part of the reason you know i didn't want to be doing injections on you know everyone or giving medications or opioids to everyone is that i knew that that wasn't the answer and even if i found a very small sliver of people that i would be willing to combine that with the active you know modalities for patients I wouldn't be able to support a business model and stay open. So, you know, I, I, there was no way I could be part of that. And so hence why I've never been in a pain practice. Traditionally. Well, and, and I think that's, I think there's a lot of good physicians that are, that are, that's happening too, mm -hmm. that are leaving, you know, we've talked about this thing about, you know, physician burnout or physician suicide. And those are definitely problems. But I think a lot of it comes down to is people don't get go into healthcare because they want to, you know, make millions of dollars and that's their only driving factor. If you want to do that, they go into investment banking. Um, but people go into healthcare on average, at least I'm just kind of thinking about my own medical school class is the vast majority of people did it because they want to help people. And then you get into the system and you start realizing very quickly that it's not set up to help people. Um, it's set up to move. And I hate this word, but this is what a colleague basically, he's like, you got to just, you got to know that this is what the, what they're trying to do here. It goes, the system is designed to move meat through the process. They don't view people as people. It uses as RVUs or patient care visits. And how can you book them? Six, you know, how can you fill up your clinic's appointments for six months so that you never have an opening in your schedule? Because an opening means you're going to lose money on that. And then you start looking at what we do in the, in, in the, in realistically is in this day and age in an industrial society, the diseases that really are people are suffering from are chronic diseases and chronic diseases are by and large diseases of lifestyle and behavior. They're diseases mm -hmm. of lack of movement of what you're eating of your uh, stress and resiliency. And, and that has to do with basically stress, whether you're sleeping enough, what, you know, what your external environment trauma and all those other things. And those are not treated with drugs, pills, injections. And yet that is what, what we pay for. And it, you know, people get frustrated by that and, it, and it's worse for pain. I mean, I, I have to, you know, it's bad in a lot of, in, in for a lot of clinical practice, but it's really horrible for pain. I'd say hor for pain specifically, interventional pain, spine surgery, definitely. Interventional cardiology being another one is if you really want to get people well, we shouldn't be doing all this high priced crap that we are doing to people. Mm -hmm. And what you find is you burn out the people that have ethics 
to realize that what they're doing is wrong. And then you have to make, I mean, I remember going through panic attacks when I started looking objectively at the data and recognizing that the injections that we did have no evidence to support their use for persistent pain. And then when you look at pain and the risk factors and what makes people better and realize that injections and therapies reinforce basically everything bad that helps to get people worse over time. But then you're like, I got a mortgage, I got a family. That, that's a horrible, horrible space to be in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of us crossed it, but it was not an easy thing to do. Um, yeah, it, it is, it is rough out there, but uh, yeah, yeah. and then there's the people who just finally throw up their hands and go, well, I'll just make my money then, you know, if yeah. they're paying for it and they don't want to get better anyway. So I'll just do whatever. Yeah. I think, I, I think when, uh, I can't remember if I said, we, we had this discussion on the last podcast is back when I was still doing interjections, I had our in, injections. I had two conversations. One was in 2009 and one was in 2010, both of them with colleagues uh, who were interventional pain specialists. The first one in 2009 had to do with that, that pain shooting down the leg, which I think we talked about last time. So when you have pain shooting down your leg that people typically say is associated with the disc herniation uh, and their comment was when that happens, we want the primary care and the primary care office tells us we get those patients in as fast as possible so that we can do an epidural steroid injection. So they get better because we know the, this was their words and this is actually true because we know the natural time courses that patient's going to get better anyway. Right. But we want them to associate getting better with us, right? It, which is, so now you're doing a, a, a procedure that has it's manipulation. It, it is. <laughs> it, it is. It is completely unethical and it happens all the time. About a year or two after that, I was at lunch with another interventional pain specialist who was putting in pumps on people. So intrathecal pumps where you, it's a big procedure and you put a little catheter into the, um, into the spinal fluid in the back. And then you start putting, you put medications in there. And these are, those are tricky. Like if, if you look at things that, that are probably the biggest liabilities in pain, that's that because there's some really, really bad things that occur with it. And in my fellowship, we were not big pump people. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, we we're pretty anti the ones that we, it was just, it was a nightmare. And so in one of my attending said, which I always took to heart is if you're going to put this in somebody, that person better be closer to you than your spouse because you can never leave them. Yeah. And so I met this, this guy's putting them in and he's putting them in for chronic non-cancer pain. Mm. And I'm like, why are you doing this? And he's going, well, I'm doing this microdosing because this guy in Kentucky said it kind of works or whatever. And I'm like, but that's, it, that's crazy. And then he turns to me and I'll never forget. He looked at me directly and he goes, you know, nothing we do really works, right? And mm. I remember in that moment of time thinking, you're putting this stuff into somebody. This is a permanent thing you're putting into. And when it comes to these implanted devices, nobody else will touch this person again. It, it, I, it, it, if you had a, if you were still practicing in pain or you had a clinic and someone says, I have a pump, will you take it over? No one does that because yeah. it's a nightmare. And, um, and I'm all I can think of is putting these things in these patients. And I remember at that moment in time thinking, if I ever believed that, if I ever believed that what I was doing didn't do any good, I would never do it again. Exactly. And, and it took, it was another three years, <laughs> three years. So I was a much slower learner than you because you did it fast. <laughs> but it's another three years before I said, I'm done. I, this is, this is ridiculous. The research says it doesn't work. I can't even make up anecdotal stories, even though patients tell me they're getting better. Um, you get, you get either at some point you have to be a, you have to be a physician and a clinician and a scientist and say, the data says this, and I'm going to trust the data over my, my, my self reports because my self reports are completely biased. Yeah.
Yeah. No, I, I think that, uh, I, in the pit of my stomach, I knew something didn't feel right. And, uh, I wouldn't say I was smart enough to figure out <laughs> exactly. I think it was just, um, it was more of the feeling. It didn't feel right. Um, and, uh, you know, to speak to the idea of, of all these things that are lifestyle, like you mentioned, that there's a lot of chronic issues, um, including pain is part of that pot of issues. Um, you know, the, the, the dilemma is that if you pick um, one lifestyle habit, I'm trying to give a good example of, of somebody say, or let's just think of a certain condition, like you're chronically dehydrated. I mean, for instance, if someone's chronically dehydrated, not everyone's going to manifest with the same kind of symptoms. And so that's the complexity of the human being is that you can, there, there are so many habits that we have in our life that impact our overall well-being and our health and wellness. And when you add on decade after decade after decade, how that can impact or manifest itself. Um, I mean, just even smoking, for example, there are some people that can get away with a little bit more than others. And there's some people that can manifest into um, like significant, like recurrent pulmonary respiratory infections they can get changes in their their nails while some others won't like they'll get the spooning of the nails because they're not delivering oxygen well to the digits of their fingers um you know there's and then even you know heart disease i mean people don't think about how even smoking has a multifaceted like effect on the body depending on your vulnerabilities and so i always remind people that genetics is like about 30% of what your health is and about 70% is your lifestyle and habits. And as much as people want to use excuses <laughs> to say that they're, you know, the genetics is not in their favor, most things, not all, there are some, you know, if you're missing an enzyme <laughs> in order to stay alive. Very, um, very rare conditions which would surface pretty early on. Yeah. Like, it's there usually, are a couple that are later, but right. rare genetic conditions, which are like the super rare things. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you have all these these lifestyles and or, or habits that can impact pain, and the funny thing is when you look at all these different lifestyle habits, that some of them are like let's just say for the, the dehydration we're talking about. I mean, I'm just there's some people that their joints ache if they're dehydrated, but it's hard to prove it. You know, I it's not like it's that. You know, you have a little flag that stands up and says okay you're dehydrated that's why your joints are hurting it doesn't always give you that kind of information but even if you were to avoid water if you completely avoid water you could die like <laughs> so there's this in-between stage where there's this ideal wellness for you as an individual that can impact or not impact what you consider pain or some other illness that comes from it so when you have so many habits that layer on top of each other in a unique individual, you can imagine that these manifestations of pain can happen in some people, even from their thoughts at times. You know, we've talked, but, I think we may have mentioned that. Go ahead. Well, that's a, to talk specifically about pain, there, there's so much to go into there, right? I mean, yeah. and every pain is unique and every person's pain unique and there's reasons for that. Um, and you know, there's like two parts to this because 
you know, if you're talking to clinicians, they're like, well, I don't believe this person has pain. Well, then you're, then you're full of it. Cause now you're either believing the person you're saying the person's lying yeah. or not. And I can guarantee you 99.9% of the time, the person is not lying and they are experiencing pain. The mm-hmm. 0.01%. I, I just remember one case. It was a workers comp case. And the guy remember in, he was like saying this stuff and he was almost like winking at me. Like he was saying it, it was just playing it for the, <laughs> and that yeah. guy maybe was not kosher, but everybody else, you say you have pain, you have pain. And that has to do with this difference between like signs and symptoms. So mm-hmm. like when we're in medical school, we learn that there are signs and symptoms. Signs are the objective indicators. So a sign would be like swelling. If your wrist is, is red hot and inflamed and swollen, independent observers would look at it and say, wow, that wrist is red hot and swollen. A symptom is in the experiential category. And what that is, that's personal statement or subjective. And so, uh, you know, uh, the sign would be the red hot inflamed swollen uh, wrist or ankle. The symptom would be that's hurts. That's painful. My ankle is painful. And, and the, the, the fine balance is symptoms can be anything. Mm-hmm because there are experiences and experiences have multiple, multiple, multiple inputs that are involved with that. And the older we get, the more inputs we have and the more complex they have, because we have memory, we have learning, we have mood. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that stuff comes together in order to treat those symptoms. So sim- you know, you have to, from a personal standpoint, you have to understand what your own symptoms mean. So, and you can, and these symptoms may not just be quote pain. They may actually be other things as well. So for me, I know my particular stress symptoms have a time frame. So if I'm in an acute scenario of stress, I get, you know, these GI and urological symptoms very soon. Right. Uh, if I'm having long-term, I have insomnia and I recognize that most of that is associated with stress for me. Um, if it's, if it's a really bad stressor, like an acute stressor about three to four days afterwards, I tend to break out. And, and that took me years to, to notice, why am I breaking out like a teenager? Oh, wait a second. This is about four days after da, 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 And so, you, but you're wanting to learn, you basically want to learn your own body and see what it's trying to tell you. Mm-hmm. So that, I don't know where we're going with that. Other than yeah, the fact no. that these symptoms don't mean you're dying. They mean your body's trying to tell you something. Right. There's a story there. And your job is, if it's personally, is to figure out what your story is. And if you're a clinician is to recognize that, um, to hear what your patient's story is, what the words that they're saying along with these, you know, these, these symptoms, and then try to match. It's almost like a detective game is match them up with all these other variables that are going on. Yeah. Yeah. No pain. Pain is the opportunity for learning an opportunity to understand yourself better. I wouldn't say it's necessarily enjoyable on the front side of front end of things, but um, the less you fear it and understand it and, you potentially can prevent it if you understand correlations. I mean, that's, that's critically important. And these are some of the things that when we say it's people say they've tried everything, these are the, like, you know, the non-passive ways, the active ways that you're engaged in your own care, your own health. Ironically, everything that's good for pain, um, you know, are things that enhance your overall wellness and your overall health in general. Pain skills are life skills. Yeah, they're 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 so they're they're so important. Um, I was gonna go somewhere with that, and I just lost it because no, um, I interrupted you. Sorry. No, that's okay. Well, like you know, people people trying to prove that you know you're not in love with your wife. You know, like 
how am I going to be able to tell? You know, that's something that you feel. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's like, you know, pain, like, okay, there can be certain so societal, if you ever want to read how emotions are made, that's a great book. I think that was the title of it. Um, you know, you have a perception of what someone in love looks like, you know, well, that doesn't mean it applies to that person. Um, you know, we have a perception of what someone in pain looks like, like a woman that's giving labor, they have to look like that. But we know that people with chronic persistent pain don't have to look like they have this acute look of pain. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a symptom and it does bother me. It gets under my skin when I hear, especially if I just happen to say that I don't do traditional pain practices, I'm not interested and they'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, I could never do stuff like that. I mean, you know, those patients are impossible and I wouldn't want to have to deal with that every day. I'm like, I'm like, I try to correct them. I'm like, actually I find pain fascinating. I find it interesting. Um, I teach about it. I try to help people understand it better so they can help themselves and make better decisions for themselves. But I actually believe that all, and it's funny when I'm in a clinical setting, like in the perioperative and the anesthesia world, um, I'm trying to understand them as a story. I don't sit there and judge that they don't have pain. And I've actually had someone who had what was called pseudo seizures um, that everyone was calling her crazy. I actually was finding it fascinating. I, we you know, ended up canceling the case or whatever, just because, you know, I didn't have a, you know, I didn't feel quite comfortable with everyone involved and everyone else was freaking out. But I personally feel like this person had a history of stuff that's gone on in their life. And this is their way of manifesting the, the sense of anxiety and concern around having surgery. And so, you know, it's something, it's interesting how the body will, it'll manifest in different ways when it's trying to keep some normalcy or it's trying to regulate itself in a world that seems un with seems like has a lot of uncertainty. Um, you know, so that, you know, I, I thought I just mentioned that there's there, you have to have a certain level of curiosity as a clinician and as a, a patient or client in order for you to make progress. That's what I think. No, I think I, that's a, that's a great point. Um, curiosity is really key. Mm -hmm. Like, and it, and it, and the more, you know, when it, God, there's so much, always have so much to talk about, but um, <laughs> you know, it, the, the goal is never to fear pain. The more you're, you, you're afraid of it, the worse it's going to get. Mm -hmm. The goal is to be, to appreciate it. And I'm not saying that you want it. Nobody goes out wanting pain, but to appreciate what it's trying to tell you, what it's trying to protect you from, and then to get curious of what about that may be. And curiosity is key. So a good friend of mine, uh, Leanne Deitch, who is, um, has really done some phenomenal work in our community. She's a social worker and, and revamped her pain program a bunch of different times. Is um, she actually uses curiosity a lot in the approach? And she goes, "Where you know, rather than be fearful, be curious." Mm -hmm. And but you start asking these questions. And I, I use it almost in the same way. I say, "Don't you know, statements versus questions." Um, if you're if you're describing everything in statements, I've tried everything. Period. Right. You can't do anything. Right. And says, so, have I tried everything? Question mark. Oh, we have to start a discussion, right? There's some curiosity. Well, what does that mean? What is everything? Is that mm -hmm. one category or not? Um, and that curiosity for pain becomes is, is what is it trying to tell you? There, and and if from, from a clinical standpoint, it's the same thing as what is your patient trying to tell you? So if, I'm, if you're hearing pseudo seizures, my, well, what's the distress? 
what are the, what, what is her body trying to protect her from? Mm-hmm. You know, some people that, that, you know, a strong protective response would be pain. Uh, that's the fastest way to grab your attention. You know, a mm-hmm. super fast way to grab your attention and say, hey, something, something needs to change here. But from a, somebody else, it could be pseudo seizure. And for somebody else, it could be fainting. It should be fatigue and all these other things in addition. So what is it we're trying to tell you? And that's so where that curiosity part comes in. Yeah. No, I think, uh, you know, anyone that's made some progress with their own pain or have helped people with pain recognize that that's, that's kind of the unspoken critical element for success. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just an inevitable need. Well, I'm curious, curious, when you're curious, it means you can learn, right? And there's, and we're not going to be so fixed in, in, you know, this is what it is. And this is the only thing it is. And that's just how it is. Well, if, if that's the case and you've make, you've made that decision that this is this, and this is only this, and then you've tried everything that you said works for it and it still doesn't work. Well, then you've just put yourself in a really bad situation because yeah. there's nothing's going to work for you. Right. Right. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy in, in, in order to create more fear. Yeah. You know, you know, if you, if you, if you really want a chance, you, you got to remain open. Yeah. And that becomes the fear too. The fear of failure is another yeah. one. Why would I try something when everything else has failed before? Yeah. Nothing's equal in the sense of, I mean, even, even physical therapy, people say I've tried physical therapy, even within that realm, <sighs> there is so much variability and clinicians and that that for anyone listening that is across the board anywhere you go in any field in any there is no uniformity to how someone listens to you how they guide you what they have available to you or for you and just because they had the first four years of training like physicians maybe uniformly the same what they learn from that point on afterwards and how they implement or integrate that into their being to deliver to you when you need it is so variable that um, you've never tried everything. So there's always hope. Yeah. That's probably a good place to kind of dive yeah. into the ending too. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I think that's true. Or, or I, would, I would just say that there's, the more you understand pain and the more you understand how it's constructed, the more opportunities they are because you start identifying things that were either not addressed in in a way that makes sense. um, were not addressed at all that maybe someone had recommended in the past, but didn't make sense for you to try it because they didn't link it together on why that's important. And, and and, uh, that's a whole other podcast about the importance of awareness and intentionality when it comes to care and particularly with pain care, how aware you are of where things fit and the intention behind the delivery of therapeutic regimen. Um, Yeah, but there, there, there is so much more hope. And, and so again, you know, this is the pain door podcast. So let's end and say that there is a lot of hope. And as we progress through these episodes, we'll start talking a little bit more about, um, and probably bring in some guests, I'm assuming, at some point, where we start talking about things are, are worse. We're going to talk about all the, the things that are really bad, but there are some potential things that are really, really good that we need to be aware of. And uh, so that, that's all I have, I guess. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, in, uh, in conclusion with Dr. Kevin and Dr. Katie with the Pandora podcast, stay tuned for our next episode. All right. Stay well, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today on the Pain Door Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know through a five-star rating on iTunes or your current podcast listening service. And be sure to check out the information and resources available at Pandora.com.
www.thepowerhouse.com.